Welcome to the Faith Bridge Sermons Podcast. Today's sermon features Bible teacher Scott Pollock and was recorded on Sunday, July 24th, 2022. And hey, if you're ever in the area, join us on Sunday on campus at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. and come say hi in person. You can also follow us on Instagram at faithbridge to see what goes on during the week. And as always, you can join us every Sunday for Faith Bridge online at faithbridge.org slash live. Here's Scott. Well, good morning. Welcome to Faith Bridge. So many of you here and so many of you tuning in online and in our communion venue. Thank you so much. Such an honor to be with you again. We are grateful, grateful that you've gathered with us. If you need a Bible today, one of our many amazing ushers are going to give you one. You can keep it as a gift. If you need one, just raise your hand. They'll get it to you. If you're here and you have a Bible, open that up or turn it on. If You've got one of those. Um, Whether you're at home or in our other venue, uh, we're going to be reading our scriptures today. So uh, it is, again, such an honor and privilege to be with you. Let's pray as uh, we begin. Father in heaven, we bless you today. We thank you. We thank you, God. I want to just take a beat and a breath to recognize your goodness. We honor you. We are in your presence, um, not because you condescended to be with us, but because of what Jesus, your son, has done on the cross to pay all of the penalty of sin. You welcome us in. You invite us in. You beat us here this morning. In your real presence, we are humbled. We honor and trust and worship you, and we look forward to all that you want to do in us, in our hearts, in our minds, in our bodies, in our relationships and families, in the problems and fears and burdens and worries that we carried in this morning. So God, we trust you, need you in all of these places. Let me give you an opportunity, wherever you are, to just pray a simple prayer for yourself this morning. Ask God to speak to you through his word. think that's a prayer he loves to answer. Pray that same prayer for somebody sitting around you, whether you know them or not, or somebody that you know is tuning in this morning online. Ask God to speak to them this morning. And then humbly, I'd ask that you would say a quick prayer for me, that God would speak through me and that it would be true and understandable. Oh, God, we trust you. We thank you, Father. We thank you that you want us and invite us to call you Father. We bless you for your spirit who lives in us who believe. And we pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. It was the last day of an anniversary trip, and I can't believe that we waited that long to discover this life-changing thing. It was on a back street of a dark alley in the night of Paris. My wife and I went in January when the rates were low, even though our anniversary is nowhere near January. It was around 10 years, so we budget-tripped Paris, and it was cold and rainy the whole time. And on the last night of our trip, we discovered, and I don't know how It took me this long to discover. We discovered street crepes. 
Oh, I know I talk about food a lot with you people. I love food. Um, <clears throat> but we discovered street crepes on the last night, and that really ruined our Paris trip. We thought, why didn't we discover this night one? And we could have enjoyed them the whole time. But watching this masterful guy do this crepe and then fold it like a genius and put all this chocolate goodness and glory inside and then wrap it in paper, and we just looked at each other. There was no words. We just looked at each other and passed it back and forth. I don't know if you ever had one of those. They sell them here now because the word has gotten out. Um, but it was a glorious, glorious thing. I um, love food. I love food. But, you know, I, I have to admit, there's not many times in my life growing up in the West that I've felt the deep pangs of hunger. I don't know about you. There are many, many, especially children in America. It's shocking. But there are many children in America that daily feel the pangs of hunger. I have not been one of those. I don't know if you could do me a favor this morning and just try to recall if you've had that experience. Maybe it was a trip. Maybe you got stuck somewhere. Maybe it was some sort of extenuating circumstance where you felt hungry. You missed a meal or six meals and you were really sort of in danger and you felt the energy and vitality draining from you because you weren't sustained by the calories that you need, quite simply, whatever they are, come from, or taste like. If you can hold that idea in your heart, I think that will help us in our text today because unlike other stories that I just sort of force into food analogies, this one is a lot about food. <laughs> It's mentioned all over the place, and I couldn't get over it as I read it and reread it and studied through it in preparation for my time with you today. I'm so very excited. Um, it's not just the caffeine and the worship. I'm just thrilled to be with you, um, and so I am a little giddy, but we're going to read our text today as we continue in the Gospel of Luke, starting in chapter 11. So if you've got your Bible or you want to turn on your Bible and get to Luke 11, that's where we'll be. Just as a recap, we have been in this Life of Jesus series for a while. While now, we rearranged things um, during the Lenten season around Easter to celebrate those events, and then we backtracked, and now we're back in chapter 11. Duffy um, was with us last week, ended chapter 10 with this amazing story of Martha and Mary, the sisters of Lazarus. One of them is worried and burdened by plate spinning. I love Duffy's words. And the other one is simply focused on, at the feet of Jesus. And that story yesterday, uh, excuse me, last Sunday, it, if you haven't had a chance to um, listen to that, if you weren't here, you would be blessed to go back online and listen to that, is connected to this passage. And this passage that we're in, in Luke chapter 11, finds itself in a bigger context in the Gospel of Luke, which is arranged, you may not know this, which is arranged geographically. The Luke um, arranges his story, part one of his story, geographically. And it's really brilliant. Luke is a physician, and so he is next level smart in many ways. His Greek is excellent, but he arranges the gospel um, geographically. So Jesus starts in this ministry in the north in Galilee. Um, chapter 4, verse 14, starting then his Galilean ministry, and he travels a bit in Galilee up in the north of Israel. And then he turns his eyes 
chapter 9, verse 51, he begins to turn his eyes towards Jerusalem, and then he heads to Jerusalem, and everything comes down. So you have this bigger area of ministry in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, and then he comes down to Jerusalem, and he doesn't enter into Jerusalem until chapter 19, verse 45, and then he spends the last few chapters of the gospel there. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, again, they see one big journey of Jesus to Jerusalem, whereas John has multiple. So this is the gospel of Luke. Up here, wide Galilean ministry, down to Jerusalem. And we, in our text, find ourselves in that journey downward. So Luke part two, which is the book of Acts, is exactly the opposite geographical organization. It starts in Jerusalem, but goes to Judea, Samaria, and to uttermost parts of the world. It goes outward as the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection and faith in him forgives our sins and grants us the free gift of eternal life, goes outward geographically. It's brilliantly um, symmetrical that the gospel of Luke part one is coming from the wide Galilean ministry down to Jerusalem and Acts goes back out. So we find ourselves in that journey downward and we see in chapter 11 um, something that I think and consider to be perhaps the most repeated words in all of human history. That's what we get to study today. The most repeated words in all of human history, perhaps. Let's look in Luke chapter 11, starting in verse one. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John, that's the Baptist, also taught his disciples. And Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Then he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he hears and says, don't bother me, the door has already been shut and my children and I are In bed, I I can't get up and give you anything. I'll tell you, even though he will not get up and give you anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask, it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and he who seeks, finds, and he who knocks, it will be opened. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish, He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he is asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Going back to chapter 11, verse 1, we recognize that this is a passage about prayer, And when you recognize that this is a passage and therefore a sermon and therefore largely a Sunday focused on prayer, something likely happened in your heart the moment that you realize that. And if your heart could manage an eye roll, a spiritual eye roll, that's probably what happened in many of our hearts. Prayer. All right, here we go. Buckle up for the guilt. 
because I know I'm not doing it enough, probably not doing it right. And most of the sermons that I've heard, and even some of the ones that I've given, sound a little bit like, eat your vegetables. Hey, we're going to talk about prayer. We know it's not tastes good, but it's good for you, so do it, you know? Um, that's not what we're going to do today. Guilt is off the table. But I need you to understand something. Conviction is different. And listen, conviction is a major ingredient to every great transformation. Conviction is a major ingredient to every great transformation. And if you, when you understood, whenever it was you understood that this passage was about prayer, if your heart just sort of tweaked a little bit, I want you to grab onto that and hold it for a second, because that is evidence that the subject is critical and the enemy of God has attacked it. It's evidence in your heart and in the world. He has attacked the idea of prayer. He's put barnacles all over it, misshapen it, made it sharp and ugly and heavy and burdensome, and then he's thrown it at you like this is some sort of thing that you have to do in order to be okay, in order to go to heaven, in order to do all these things. And since you don't really do it all that well compared to someone else in your fiction imagination, then you probably aren't all that great with God and therefore you should feel bad, probably should not make eye contact with the pastor during the sermon lest he misunderstand. That is not what we're doing. And that's evidence that this subject is really, really important. And so we're not going to give in to guilt because guilt is used by the devil to make us feel like we're not good enough. And what we want to see is that God is great enough and that prayer is powerful enough to cover over all of our imperfections. And so conviction, we're gonna have, grab onto that and uh, we'll look, okay? So chapter 11, verse one, it happened while Jesus was praying in a certain place. After he had finished, one of his disciples asked him a question. Let me ask you if you can zoom in your imagination back there. Disciples are watching Jesus pray. It's not really spooky or weird, although it could be if you wake up from, from a nap or praying and you look over and people are watching you. That could be a little awkward. But uh, these are disciples of Jesus and that's the whole game. They watch the master do and then they want to repeat what he does. That's what discipleship is. To learn from the master his character his values, his mission, and to reduplicate that in your own life. That's what discipleship is. And so the disciples are doing what they should do as disciples. They're watching Jesus pray. Let me ask you a question. What did they see? What do you think they saw in Jesus praying that caused them to ask, I want to do what you just did. Could you teach me? What did they see? We see Jesus pray often in the scriptures. And Jesus is perfect. He doesn't struggle with committing sin. He was tempted in every way that we are tempted. So he didn't have any confession to do. He was one with the Father, even in his incarnation. So some of us in our hearts are thinking, yeah, well, it's a lot easier for Jesus to pray than it is for me to pray, okay? 
that may be a misunderstanding, although I know where you're coming from because Jesus was 100% human. He wasn't just 50-50, he was also 100% divine. In this perfect union of perfect God and perfect humanity, Jesus does understand what it's like for us to pray. I'm just asking, what did the disciples see that encouraged them to ask, I want to do that, could you teach me? And maybe you parents could ask, do my kids see in me a prayerful attitude, a a reverence and a priority to read the scriptures, the way that I treat people, the way that I treat my spouse, the way that I engage church life? Do they see things in me that make them want to do the same things? that they would somehow, in a bold way, ask me as a child to a father or mother, can you teach me how to do that? Because that's discipleship. The goal of parenting is actually to make disciples. And here the disciples are looking at Jesus saying, teach me. I want you to understand that uh, teachability is the hallmark of humility. And the disciples show that. Teachability is the hallmark of humility. Teachability is fueled by constant requests and questions about things that have great value. And here are the disciples looking at Jesus saying, I want to learn how to do that. This passage, I said, is perhaps the most repeated words in all of human history. But as we read it, your mind is including different words than what we saw in Luke. That's because this is not the most well-known version of the prayer, the Lord's prayer, the disciples' prayer, the model prayer, that comes from Matthew. Um, Matthew chapter six in the Sermon on the Mount. Although we're not gonna read it there, it's a little longer than this one. That's the one most people recognize. I wanna teach you what Jesus taught his disciples before Matthew's version of the prayer because that is included in how Jesus taught the disciples to pray. So Matthew chapter six, he begins his Context and teaching on prayer with this. Chapter six, verse five. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you, but you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. I need you to understand something when it comes to spiritual practices and disciplines. Posturing is its own shallow reward. Posturing for those around you is its own shallow reward. When the hypocrites, the Pharisees and scribes stood on the street corners and prayed in a manner just to get people to go, oh, well, look how spiritual he is, okay? That was it. That's all they got. That was their reward. And Jesus says, when you pray, don't do that. Have you ever been tempted to do that? I have. Praying in a group. Saying, it's my turn. Okay, buckle up, everybody. (laughs) You turn up your vocabulary a couple notches, right? Bring in all these theological words that you barely understand. (laughs) 
thank you, Jesus, for the propitiation of your atoning sacrifice. You know, like, uh, what, what is happening right now, okay? Is it possible that we are tempted to posture, even though we're not Pharisees standing on a street corner? I want you to understand that temptation is regular. I feel it, you feel it, we recognize it. Posturing is its own shallow reward. God, in a way, kind of, mm, wow. I wish that that were different. I wish your heart was not as in tune with what they think. I wish your heart was more in tune with me. That's not all that he says. Verse seven, and when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Mechanical repetition lays cold on my heart and God's heart. Mechanical repetition of prayer lays cold on your heart. It doesn't do anything to vivify it. It doesn't warm it up. It doesn't stoke the fires of your passion. Mechanic repetition lays cold on your heart and it lays cold on the heart of God. He was like, you think that that's better? when I would say no, all I'm looking for is a heart of humility and honesty, even in the midst of imperfection as we will see. All of this likely went before what we see in Luke chapter 11, so there is some interesting encouragement there. Don't posture, don't mechanically repeat thinking that the word count is the most important, the heart is the most important. Now back to Luke 11, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. And Jesus therefore said to them, when you pray, say this. So there's a lot of question whether this is a prayer that we should repeat, it's a model that we should work from, it's uh, principles that we should expand. I say yes to all of those. It seems here that Jesus says to say. In Matthew 6, he says, use, it's sort of, it, Jesus sort of inclined to say in Matthew 6 that here's a great example prayer for you. And so should we say the Lord's Prayer? I think we should. Should we expand on its truths? Yes. Should we um, translate and um, expand on the principles that it shares? Yes, and we'll do that Lord willing, if we end, but he says, hey, when you pray, say this. What's the first word? Can you say it with me? The first word of the prayer. Father, say it out loud for me. Father, do you understand that there's only about seven times in the Old Testament that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is called Father? Seven. That's eight, seven. And all of those are in reference to the nation of Israel. The individual relationship of child to father as the God, creator God is unheard of until Jesus comes and begins to speak to God as father. And this is how he wants us and his disciples, we by extension still his disciples to pray. First word, father. That is important and it's balanced Excuse me, I don't really like the idea of balance. I think maybe Christians borrow that a little too much from Eastern religions. It's rather held in tension with the next phrase. 
Father, which includes intimacy. I don't know if you have a, a great earthly father or not. Many of you don't. Many of you have a father who was okay. Many of you have a father who was just, huh. Many of you have a father that you'd rather not talk about. And that's rough because most kids, generally speaking, get a lot of their idea of what God is like from their earthly fathers growing up, generally speaking. God's grace in single parent homes of all kinds is abundant. Thank you, Jesus. But if you have a rough earthly father and this prayer begins with father and all you see is that dude, um, there is some work that, of healing that may need to be done for you to see this as Jesus intended. Because when he speaks later uh, from argument from a lesser to greater, uh, that is uh, uh, maybe a better starting point for you. Even you fathers, when your child asks you for bread, doesn't give him a stone, or ask him for a fish, doesn't give him a scorpion, etc. And how much more your heavenly father? Some of us don't have a good starting point, but Jesus wants us to begin there, father, intimacy, and that's held in tension with this second phrase, hallowed be your name. That's not a phrase that we use, hallowed. I don't know how many of you work that into your grocery list regularly. Hallowed is not typically in our common vernacular, but it means to make holy, to sanctify, to set apart. It's used 28 times in the New Testament in all kinds of beautiful contexts that you would recognize. Father intimate, held in tension by your name is holy to be set apart. So there's this beautiful, beautiful idea just in the first couple of words. We pray to a father who loves his child, his daughter and his son, but that father is holy, set apart, king, creator of the universe, high and exalted. He is not our buddy. He is father and holy. And so yes, he by his grace calls us friend. And that's beautiful. But he is still holy. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. This idea kingdom, this word in Greek, is probably more related to the noun Lord than king, such that it actually more refers to dominion and authority rather than kingdom. So it may be that we pray, Father, holy is your name. May your dominion be expressed and enjoyed all over the earth, let it come. Your authority, let it be realized here. And just in those first few words, we have this focus on God's glory. And then, I want you to see, even more expansive in Matthew chapter six, lest you misunderstand that we pester God with our petty needs when we pray. Jesus' model prayer turns directly to my need after God's glory. We start with God's glory, and then we turn to my need, your need, directly. I've been pondering a lot about the idea of infinity. I know that sounds nerdy of me, but it's true. Um, 
in, in this. Not, not infinity when it relates to time or distance, but infinity when it relates to something like size. And this is my contention. I've been asking God about this. And I say, sometimes, God, I bring to you something that I think is a little too small for you, right? I bring a request, a need before you, and I think, it's a little too small. But, and here's what God is kind of stoking in my mind. If God is infinite, I believe he is, he's eternal, his infinitude is in every respect, and when we hand him something that we think is small, he says, my size meter runs infinitely in both directions. So there is nothing that you think is small that is actually small to me because it lands on a scale of size that's infinite in both directions. So true is nothing that I think is too big for God. He says, you think that's big? Wow. Just as he says, you think that's too small, too petty? Wow. His understanding and engagement with us is on a different scale. So after God's glory, he says to us, he says that we should pray, and all of this is in the plural, interesting, give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Of course, God does not lead us into temptation. That last phrase is a protection, a prayer protection from the evil one. Don't you know that it is hard to forgive, and therefore it's right to pray that God would give us the grace to forgive and, and confess and ask God to forgive us because of Jesus. The answer to that question is always yes, but it reminds us that we are imperfect. But the first thing, give us each day our daily bread. That reminds me of something in the Old Testament. I don't know if it takes your imagination back there, but it takes me back to a place of grumbling. Newly freed slaves, worn out sandals, empty pockets. The mist of the Red Sea just behind them. A pillar of cloud leading them by day and a pillar of fire by night. And all of a sudden they get a little grumbly food in the prayer. And they cry out and Moses says, yeah, okay. God, what are we going to do? And God says, uh, I'm going to do something. And actually, if you read the text, it's crazy. He does it for 40 years. It doesn't stop until the day they cross the Jordan River under Joshua into the promised land. 40 years. He says, I'm going to rain down this angel bread. Manna actually in Hebrew actually translates as what is it? That's, that's because what they said when they went out in the morning, what is it? They were like, manna? It's actually a question. Manna? And they're like, I guess that's what we call it forever. What is it? We ate, what is it? With a little honey and sometimes with some sugar, sometimes with some seawater, whatever we had. What is it? It was daily. Now, remember what God said? You were to go and to bring it in daily. Don't bring more than the day because if you do, then what? It'll turn sour and rot and fester worms. But on Friday, you can pick two days because I don't want you to do it 
on Saturday, which is, your, which is your Sabbath, your day of rest. So on Friday, miraculously, for 40 years, every Friday for 40 years, you did gather two days worth and it didn't rot. But on Wednesday, if you gathered too much, it did rot. There is a fantastic, fantastic truth here. Many writers and pastors and scholars and Christians refer to it often as the manna principle. Faith is really important to God. Way more important in our relationship than it is for us, it seems. And the manna principle is a principle of faith. Every day, you have to trust that God's going to send it because that's what I'm living on for today. I can't bank it yesterday for today. I have to trust him for it today. The manna principle has to be, at least in my mind, behind this first request. Give us each day our daily bread. It is a cry from faith, for faith, for the thing that fuels us, food. The most basic thing. God, give us what we need today. Perhaps he's in the back of his mind. Jesus is thinking of because he's the living word, he wrote the word. Um, Proverbs 30, hey, don't give me too much that I forget you and don't give me too little that I have to steal. This word of wisdom, give me each day what I need for that day because this makes me and helps me live by faith in your goodness, in your engagement to know in my heart that you see me, that you know what I need, and that you are good to provide everything I need today, right now. Give me today, give us today what we need today. It's almost the center of this prayer. It's absolutely, absolutely beautiful. But it gets more beautiful, in fact. Um, if you still have some reservations, uh, wait a second. He says, let me tell you a story. Verse five. Suppose one of you has a friend, goes to him at midnight and he says, hey, uh, can you lend me three loaves because a friend of mine surprised me and I have nothing to give him. And that already sets us into the shame context in the ancient Near East. To be hospitable was a high value and priority. And if you weren't hospitable, that brought shame on you. Hold that idea of shame. We don't live in an honor shame culture in the West. But in the ancient Near East, in the time of the Old and New Testament, it was an honor-shame culture. The, one of the most important things about social interactions. And so he's saying, it's shameful for me to, come and, uh, to have a friend come and me not give him something. So would you give it to me? And he says, hey, um, from the inside, he answers, don't bother me. The doors are already been shut and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. Again, they would have all lived and slept in the same room. So this guy would have had to get up and go step over 17 children, right? Uh, and go to the bread cupboard and get out the cupboard without waking everybody up. And the baby starts crying and then the wife gives you the look. You're like, really? And you're like, yeah, thank you. Uh, all of this is your fault, okay? And so he's like, no, I, I'm not gonna do that. But watch, verse eight, I tell you, even though he won't get up and give you something because he's your friend. 
Yet because of his persistence, we often think it's the guy knocking. I don't think it's the guy knocking. I think it's the guy with the bread because of his persistence because that word is also translated shamelessness. Because of the friend's sense of honor, he will get up and give you as much as he needs. The point, God does not answer your prayer based on association. He answers your prayer based on his character of honor and goodness. So our power of prayer isn't somehow based in the strength of the intimate bond that we have with the Father through years and years of discipleship, even though that prayer and strength and bond can be matured and expanded and should be. He says, that's not why God answers your prayer. God answers your, your prayer because of his honor, because of his character. Oh, okay, and, and then he drops us some real good application. So ask, seek, knock. I remember that because ask is an acronym. Ask, S, seek, K, knock. Ask, seek, knock, and it will be given to you. It will be found, and it will be open to you. He says, go for it. Don't hesitate. God's character is good enough. Just ask, lean in. And then the last one is perhaps the best. He's like, God wants to give you the best. Do you understand that, daughter, son? God wants to give you the best. He says, even you earthly fathers, the word father is used all through here. Even you earthly fathers, when your child asks you for bread, he doesn't give him a stone. If it asks him for fish, he doesn't give him a scorpion. So how much more, it's an argument from lesser to greater, how much more will your heavenly, will your heavenly father give you the Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit. That seems like a real big humdinger there at the end. There's no mention of the Holy Spirit until the end. And he's like, well, asking food. You notice that the second, the first image there is about bread, asking bread. And then the second image is about food. Again, it's all through here. Food is all through here. Much more. How much more will the Heavenly Father give you the Spirit? To end, I want to show you how this passage is a remedy for every single one of the hangups that you and I have when it comes to prayer. Every single one. First of all, let's jump in on the spirit. The spirit, we know from the rest of the scriptures, especially after Pentecost, indwells us who believe in full. We have the fullness of the Holy Spirit when we trust in Jesus. But it also says something about how he helps us pray. Look at Romans chapter 8 on your screen, verse 26 and 27. Now in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses, for we don't know what to pray for as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings, too deep for words, and it continues. And he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So the Spirit indwells you, believer, and he interprets your prayers with groanings that you can't produce. The Spirit indwells and interprets and intercedes for you. I got one better. How about Hebrews chapter seven, verse 25? Not talking about the spirit anymore, but talking about the son. Therefore, he, Jesus, is also able to save forever those who come to God through him since he always lives 
to make intercession for them. What is Jesus doing right now? He is praying for you and interceding for you. And so here's this idea. I don't want to pray. I don't think I'll do it right. I have an imperfect prayer. My language isn't right. My theology isn't right. Maybe my posture isn't right. Maybe my heart isn't right. All of that's true for you and for me. Here's the beauty. The Spirit is perfecting your imperfect prayers. He's interpreting and interceding, and the Son himself is interceding for you when you pray. I don't know if it gets more beautiful than that. It sort of takes away all of the fear and doubt that I struggle with. The big simple thing that I want to get in your head, if you just remember nothing else but this, is very simple. Prayer is the language of dependence and the fuel of discipleship. In fact, um, prayer is the fuel of discipleship because it is the language of dependence. It's the dialect that we speak with our Heavenly Father. And so how do we apply this? And we're going to do it now. One, I want to encourage you, pray the Lord's Prayer in a couple of ways. Recite it in your heart with an engaged heart, not re repeating it mechanically, not posturing. But then translate each of those ideas into your own words. Take it into an ownership position. And then more, in a third level, expand each of those principles and spend some time on each one of those phrases. And just let your heart go, your mind go. Pray the Lord's Prayer. Two, I would say pray God's Word, especially the Psalms. If you don't know how to pray, if you feel a little bit more timid, even though the Spirit and the Son are interceding and perfecting your prayers, pray God's Word. There are prayers everywhere in the Gospels, everywhere in Paul. I pray the Psalms all the time. And here's what God teaches us through David in the Psalms. Do you know you and I pray a lot, actually? We say the words that could be prayers, but we say them in the wrong direction. We say them here. We say them here. And David teaches us that even the ugly, the unadorned, the imperfect are best directed here. When we say those same things to God, God delights in them. He invites them and welcomes them. When you see some of David's prayers, you go, really? And God says, yes, because this comes from an honest, vulnerable heart. It may be imperfect, but I welcome and invite. I delight in it. So pray the Lord's Prayer. Pray the Scripture's biggest thing. Pray now. I mean right now. Whenever This is a rule in the Pollock house. When something happens, the first thing we do is pray. And right now. If it's in the parking lot, if it's on the bread aisle at HEB, that's fine. We don't want to make a scene. We don't want to posture. But we want to pray now. If somebody asks for prayer and it's safe, like you're not, you know, at 75 in the HOV, if it's safe... Pray now. Don't just say, I'll, I'll pray for you. Like, no, do it now and do it boldly. Go directly to God and ask him what you want from him. 
and trust that the Spirit and the Son are interceding for you. Everything you need has been given. There is no longer any excuse, any fear, any burden when it comes to prayer. The beautiful part is this. Jesus lived this out. Did he not? He did it in his earthly ministry. His disciples watched it. He did it in Gethsemane. Can you wrap this around your head? On the cross, Jesus actually died praying. Jesus died while praying. To have and to give us access to God as Father to expand our prayer opportunities. He died while praying. And so let's pray. We're going to respond in worship, but let's pray. Would you pray with me? And let's sort of try to actualize some of these things that we've learned. Father in heaven, we bless you and thank you that you invite us to call you Father. You invite us in. And we glory in the grace of intimacy that you give us. So in this time, would you just thank him for being your father? Thank him for welcoming you as a child, for adopting you into his family by grace. Father, we want to declare and promote your holiness. You are high and lifted up, which makes your intimate relationship with us all the more glorious because you are so high. You are so sanctified and set apart. You are not common. You are holy and good. And we ask that your dominion and authority that exists now in heaven be experienced and expanded on the earth. That all men, all needs, all burdens and injustices would be found and solved and healed in your good authority. We pray in this moment to give us what we need for today. Your heavenly Father knows and sees your need. Would you just lay them before him? He already knows, but he wants you to say it. Would you lay before him your daily need, your anxiety, your burden, your fear, your worry? God, we confess we are not perfect. We are racked through with sin, blindness, imperfection, harm and hurt. Forgive us, God. Wash us with your grace. Give us clean hands and a pure heart and give us the grace because you have forgiven us so much to forgive all that hurt us. God, we need your grace, especially in forgiveness. Lead us not in the, in the ways that will harm us, harm our families, protect us from the evil one. You intercede. Your spirit and son intercedes where our enemy's job description is just the opposite. He's the accuser of the brethren, the adversary. Protect us from him as we walk in faith, God. And I would pray for everyone tuning in and everyone here that their engagement with prayer, with this language of dependence, 
would explode and blossom in joy and glory and impact and they would see you answer prayers and meet them there. We love you. We thank you. We bless you. Pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.